Revelation 19, and our attention this morning is just going to be on the first five verses. So I'll read Revelation 19, verses 1 to 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and honor and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, I trust that we have some understanding of what needs to happen over the next several moments. You are the Lord of life. You are life itself. Your Word gives life to Your people. And it's our need to be fed from the abundance of Your table. At the same time, we have remaining in us very much that is at war with what Your Word might have to say. We have difficulties as simple as mental capacity and comprehension. The trial that we face every Lord's Day as we must shut out everything of the world and give our attention to Your Word. And Lord, our, the arm of the flesh is often very weak and unwilling to reach and to pull that door closed. And so we ask, Lord, that You would help us, that You would close the door to the world, that we might be shut up with Your Word for a few moments and really be able to give our attention to it. We have the weaknesses of, our, of, of sin, Lord, there are things in this chapter and in this small portion of Scripture that we don't like to hear and it is very hard to even comprehend that it is so. But Lord, I pray that today would be another step forward in our sanctification, that Your Word would sanctify us and that we would be drawn a little bit closer to You and a little bit further away from this world. Lord, we know that the, the cords with which You have bound us and are drawing us to Yourself are stronger than any cords we might have bound ourselves with to this world. And I pray that you would continue to just break those ties, that when the time comes to see you face to face, we would freely, gladly, and with praise enter into your presence. Help us for the next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. It's important as we work through this book to consistently be reminded of what's happening. So I want to remind you that in each of the seven visions that constitute the revelation of Jesus Christ, 
we get to see, the reader, the servants of God, get to see something of the present age, of the church age. We get to see something of what's going to constitute the end of the present age, the end of all time as we know it. And then we get to see something of the eternal state, what's going to follow that end of the present age. And all of this is given to us as saints so that we can be comforted as we're reminded that in the death and resurrection and really going back into the ministry of Christ, the incarnation, His his perfect life in our place, His death in our place, His resurrection and ascension, He has effectively won the victory and has accomplished everything that is necessary to bring the full consummative redemption to the entire earth in His work. And we're seeing that the present time is merely the working out of and applying of that already accomplished work. We, we get to see over and over that Christ presently has been exalted and reigns over all of the affairs of mankind. Now the reason that we have to repeat that, and perhaps even more so the closer we get to the end of the book, is as I've said, a lot of the, we might want to call them loose ends that we've sort of left dangling in our, in our walk through the book, they all begin to be tied up in these last several chapters. The, this Sixth vision ends in chapter 19, the seventh vision, chapters 20 to 22. And a lot of the things that we've seen are all going to come to... to uh, we get to see how they, how they connect, the fullness of them in the revelation of God. And so we need to be reminded what makes up each vision so that we can ask, since we're in the sixth of seven visions, what have we seen so far? And if we can lay it out and we can say, well, I've already seen a little bit of this and I've seen a little bit of this... Having started at chapter 1, we can begin to assume some of the things we have yet to see. Knowing that, then when we come to something very difficult to interpret, we say, well, based on the way these visions have worked, the interpretation actually gets a little more clear. It's a little easier to understand. We'll see that especially when we get into chapter 20. A lot of uh, debate revolves around the first few verses of chapter 20. Well, if we have paid attention to the whole book this far, when we get to those first several verses, it's not quite as complicated as we might think. So, in this vision so far, we've seen a little bit of what we can expect to see throughout the church age. Uh, back in beginning in chapter 17, we see the great prostitute, the, the world system riding with the, the power of the beast, riding and using the power of the governments of men to draw men away from any allegiance to God and, and uh, capitalize on the idolatry of men. We've seen these powerful rulers under this seductive influence warring against Christ and His people. Now that was, we say, well, where was the war? Well, just a, a brief snippet in Chapter 17, verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb. Well, that's, that's not a whole lot. Well, we're going to see more to come. But a brief snippet of that war. And then we conclude that this is going to characterize the church age. There's always going to be this rising up of the, the kingdoms of men. They come, they go, they come, they go. They're always warring against Christ and His church, trying to draw men away from any allegiance to God. We've seen a, a little bit of the end of all things and the victory of Christ. At the end of verse 14 of chapter 17, they do make war on the Lamb, but it says the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. 
Why do we need to know about lords? Why do we need to know about kings? Well, we just heard about the kings of the earth just prior to that. And those with Him, that is those with the Lamb, the saints are called and chosen and faithful. They war against Christ and His people and Christ conquers. What does that conquering look like? Well, we just saw that in chapter 18, last Lord's Day. The fall of Babylon, the whole world system comes to an end. Now having seen those things, a little bit of the church age, uh, a little bit of the the victory of Christ and what's going to happen at the end of the church age. When we come into chapter 19, and this chapter concludes the sixth vision, we can ask, what kind of things might we see here? What's missing so far? Well, we could say, well, we haven't seen anything of of the age to come. We haven't seen anything about what's going to follow that end of all things. And so we kind of expect to see that. Now, that doesn't mean that that's all we see, but we are assuming that something in this chapter leads us beyond the end of time as we know it. Now, if you just look with me at chapter 19 just to sort of see the layout of it, at least in the first ten verses, we see the response of the godly to the fall of Babylon, and we get to see something of the eternal condition of the saints, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we'll look at next week if the Lord wills. That's going to be the primary focus of the seventh vision. So as we move into chapters 20 to 22... Our our primary focus is going to be the rejoicing of the saints and the glorious state of the saints after that marriage supper. In verses 11 to 21 of chapter 19, there's, as far as I can tell, something of a, a historical regression that expands upon the victory of Christ and the destruction of those who were united to Babylon. So looking at the vision as a whole... Chapter 17, verse 14, they're going to make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb is going to conquer. Chapter 18, here's what it looks like as the Lamb conquers. And then when we get to the end of chapter 19, here's the Lamb actually conquering. That's sort of how it's laid out. So going back to chapter 18 and what we saw last week, we know that when Babylon falls, all of the labors of men, as they have invested in this world, it's all going to come crumbling down. The more that men invest in this world and seek to build themselves a lasting city here, the the illustration I used was they're just stacking blocks higher and higher, the the system getting more and more top-heavy, just something that is going to fall all the more further on the final day. At the present time, men do act like they're indestructible, that God can't reach them, and so they just keep building. If one political system doesn't work, well, we'll just build up another one. If one party doesn't satisfy, well, we'll just go to another one. We'll just keep doing it. We can do this. We are indestructible. That's the thinking of man. We've got this. We can build this thing. And so they work, and they toil, and they sweat, and they, there's always this desire to have something to show for it. We know throughout history there's never anything to show for it. They rise and they fall. All that men build is going to someday crumble. And we saw that they're going to be astonished that all that they had built could be gone so quickly. They've, they've invested everything they have into it. How could it be so weak? How could it be so puny? We thought we were indestructible. Surely if we put our minds together, we can build something indestructible. How could it fall? They invest much. They inspect much. We saw at the end of the chapter that at some point all of the revelry, all of the celebration of mankind is going to come to an end. 
All of the industry of man, the working and creating and developing and us putting our minds to great extent and producing things, especially technological advancements and things like this, that really we, we look at what we got, a phone in our hand, a car that runs off electricity, whatever it is, we, we think, you know, what's next? What's next? What, what can we not do? Well, you'll never go to Mars. Ah, we can go to Mars. Well, what's next? What, what is the limit to mankind? There is no limit. We can do whatever we want to do, but someday it's going to stop. We saw the joys of human flourishing apart from God are going to be gone forever. And we saw that they're going to weep over their city. They're going to continue to call it the great city, the mighty city. They weep because their prophets were gone. Everything that they thought they were putting into it, they get nothing in return. All that they had hoped in did not provide. It never satisfies and will never satisfy. That's how the wicked, that's how the ungodly respond to the fall of Babylon. So now we come into chapter 19, and here at the opening of the chapter, we get to see how the godly respond to that fall. What, what will the godly do? In verses 1 to 5, that's what we're looking at. Now last Lord's Day in chapter 18, we just started at verse 1 and worked our way straight through it, but... In these five verses, I want to break, break this up into two topical sections and look at them separately. We have essentially a collection of songs. And so anytime you want to get the full weight and import of a song, you ask, okay, who wrote it? And then what does it say? Who are the, who are the singers? And what is the, the substance or the, the lyrics of the song? And so those are going to be our two main headings, the singers and then their songs. So first, again, the question is, how do the godly respond to Babylon? The first heading is, we need to take note of these singers. And this is going to be important when we get to the concluding application. This is not just fluff. Hopefully, that's always assumed. Verse 1a says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Now back in chapter 18, verse 20, remember all of this goes together. We saw these words, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Here we see that sort of call to praise answered. This great multitude is the same multitude from chapter 7. And I'll read those verses, verses 9 to 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the same group. In chapter 14, Verses 1 to 3, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. It's the same group. This is the church triumphant. This is the church 
in glory. Now we know that the return of Christ to judge the harlot is the same event that issues forth in the glorification of the saints. As He returns, the saints are glorified and we will rejoice while the unbelievers are crying out in horror. Now sometimes, and sometimes you'll hear men refer to people who've gone on before us even now as being in glory. Well, they are in the presence of God, but they are not yet glorified. They're disembodied spirits. They are the spirits of just men made perfect, but their bodies are decaying in the ground. When Christ returns, the bodies will come out of the ground, be glorified as bodies, reunited with spirits made perfect, and in that moment we are actually glorified. And that's who we see singing here. The glorified saints worshiping. When verse 4, we see what I'm calling the heavenly court. We first saw these ones described in chapter 4 standing around the throne. Verse 4 says, "...the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures..." fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. The 24 elders, remember, they seem to represent the people of God from all times and places. The four living creatures representing all of creation or maybe rational creation. But they sort of just live and dwell and exist in the throne room, the presence of God. In chapter 4, they were worshipping before the throne. In chapter 5, we saw those concentric circles of praise. There was the 24 elders and the living creatures, then it erupted into the angels, then it erupted into all of creation. These, the, this heavenly court, they always dwell right there in the presence of God. And when we got to chapter 7, there was a multitude of the redeemed saints. We just read the passage. They sing out, and then in response to their worship, these 24 elders and living creatures, the heavenly court follows up. They, they echo the worship. They, they come in with their song. The same thing happened in chapter 11 at the blasting of the seventh trumpet. There was worship and then the 24 elders and the living creatures respond. This is heavenly praise. So the glorified saints cry out in praise. Then the heavenly court follows with their praise. At the beginning of verse 5, we see from the throne came a voice. It's almost like the concentric circles are working backward now. The redeemed saints, the heavenly court, from the throne in the very center, from the very throne itself. We've seen this language many times in the book and we, every time we see it we ask, who's talking? It's from the throne, is this... Is this the divine essence, is this Christ, is this some archangel? And every time we come back to the same point, it doesn't tell us who the voice is, but we do know that the throne is the very epicenter of the sovereign rule and reign of God over the entire universe. And so, whatever comes from the throne always comes forth with all of the divine authority with it. This is not somebody spouting out some worship that then God has to say, hush, I don't, that doesn't need to be said now. Whatever comes forth from the throne is, we could say, from God Himself, whether that be mediated through another voice. And so we, we do make and can make some interpretive conjectures, 
But we are at least able to see that all of these singers put together constitute a heavenly choir. Heavenly voices singing a heavenly song with heavenly approbation. If we wanted to gather all of these singers up and just summarize the the choir and the song in one phrase, we could say, this is the song of heaven. The godly, the saints, the redeemed, the heavenly court, all together. Babylon falls. Look at how the worldly, how the wicked respond. Babylon falls. Look at how heaven responds. So those are the singers. Secondly, then we come to the songs. And I've already assumed the relationship between chapter 18 and chapter 19, but when you look at the lyrics of the songs, you see that that is true. We In chapter 18, the wicked respond. In chapter 19, verses 1 to 5 specifically, the godly respond to the same event. And we see that in in several ways. First, we see the substance of the songs. If we wanted to summarize the basic tenor or substance of each of these songs in order to get the overarching theme, what would we find very often when a songwriter writes lyrics and music, you want the music to match the lyrics. And that's why we have to be careful. I have to be careful. We all have to be careful. When we're picking a tune for a psalm that we don't pick a, a, a delightsome tune to, to match with a, 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 a psalm that doesn't, the lyrics don't match that tune. So we know that lyrics and music go together to produce a feel. What's the feel of the song? What's the demeanor in heaven as Babylon falls? Is it sorrow? Is it astonished silence? Do they they stand in fearful trembling as they've just watched God pour out His judgment thinking, are we next? As we saw last Lord's Day, sometimes... In the language of Scripture, God's anger is roused. Sometimes it burns. It consumes some of the outlying uh, areas of the camp. Do we have to be fearful that this wrath might now turn and, and consume some of us? What's the feel in heaven? Notice a few key words. Back to verse 1. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Most of you know this is an English transliteration of a Greek term that means praise Jah or praise Yahweh or praise Jehovah. In the call to worship, we've been in certain psalms and every one of them starts, we saw this several weeks ago, they all start the same and we call them the Hillel Psalms. The praise the Lord psalms because they all start with the same phrase. Praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord. To praise is to extol greatness. It's to draw attention. We can do this with our children, with our cars, with our houses, with anything. To draw attention to and adore the good traits of a thing. You praise your vehicle when you say, Puppy's got 200,000 miles on it and running strong. You've just praised. You've drawn attention to some trait and you have have adored it. You've, You've lifted that good trait up. 
That's what it means to praise the Lord. Draw some attention to His good traits and then adore Him for that. In verse 3, it's repeated. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. In verse 4, the heavenly court fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Notice their posture, they fall down. And then that posture is explained by their action. They worship. The word means they prostrated themselves before God. It is not merely a physical action, but it is a a posture of the soul to come low into the presence of God and adore Him with all that you are. They fell down, adored God, bowed their soul down before God, and then it says they, they affirmed with the Amen. Let it be. It is true. We agree. Yes, right. Hallelujah. What they have said, we agree. Praise Yahweh. The heavenly court affirms the praise of the redeemed. And then the voice from the throne comes in and says, Praise our God. Verse 5. Praise our God. Extol the greatness of our God. Lift up and draw attention to His good and wondrous works and magnify His name for what He's just done. Praise Him. What's the attitude of heaven? It's nothing but praise. Nothing but looking to God. Seeing God's works and magnifying His name for what He has just done. At the sight of the Lamb conquering the harlot and mixed in with the cries of the damned, heaven erupts with praise to God. That's the the substance of the song. It's just praise. You would put a good tune, an upbeat tune, a a, a soul-lifting tune to this song. It's praise. Now what exactly are these songs about? We know they're songs of praise, but notice who they're praising and notice why they're praising. First we see God is central to their song. He is all of their attention. He fills their eyes and hearts with His own glory and they're taken up with rapturous praise to Him. Verse 1, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 5, praise our God. Throw in there the hallelujahs. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Amen. Praise Him. Lift up His character. Lift up His traits. They're singing of God and to God. Now compare this with what we saw last week in chapter 18. What was their concern as destruction came? They're concerned about their city. Alas, alas, the great city, you mighty city. They're concerned about their cargo and their enterprises. Well, we just invested so much. They're concerned with the longings that have been left unmet. They're concerned with their wealth. It's amazing that even in the destruction of Babylon, the wicked are unable to see beyond the thing crumbling to the crumbler. They can't get their eyes off of it because this is what has, this is what has constituted all of their obsession for their whole life. 
their puny works, and even as they crumble, it's all they can think about. But in heaven, all is of God. God is truly all in all. The wicked can't seem to fill their minds with anything but their own filthy rags. The righteous can't fill their minds with anything but God. God has so swelled and pressed out every competing loyalty in their affections that all they have left is God. They can't think or speak of anything but Him. He's the subject of their songs. It's all about Him. They're not concerned about what just came crumbling down. They worship Him because He brought it down. And that's what we see next. They've erupted in these songs in light of judgment. One and two again, they say salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute. In other words, they worship God because of His judgments and His judgments are praiseworthy because He judged the prostitute, because He judged Babylon. In verse 3, Hallelujah! Praise Jehovah! Praise Yahweh! The smoke of her torment goes up forever and ever. Because Babylon is suffering this eternal torment, they worship. The wicked wept at Babylon's fall. Heaven rejoices at Babylon's fall. The wicked are the subjects of God's judgment. The righteous rejoice as God judges the wicked. And again, this is not ideas. It is not the smoke of of ideas that goes up for all of eternity. It's not the smoke of buildings and, and pearls and gold that goes up for all of eternity. This is the smoke of the torment of souls of the wicked in anguish. And as the the, the godly, as heaven beholds this, they praise God. They praise Him for His judgments. Now why is she being judged? Verse 2, He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. She corrupted the earth. Now we know from Scripture, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It belongs to Him. The earth was created by God for God's glory. This whore comes along and she corrupts that which is God's. Mankind took what God created for His glory, His earth, and corrupted it. Mankind turned God's earth into a place for the exaltation of mankind and not the exaltation of God. To to show forth the glory of mankind. To display the power of mankind and the rule of mankind. They took God's stage and they scooted Him off and they said, we will glorify ourselves. They corrupted the earth. Men built their own city and corrupted God's earth. And now God comes in judgment upon men because they have taken what was God's and corrupted it with their idolatry. When you take what is God's 
and what God means to resound to His own glory. And you pervert it into something to exalt yourself. You corrupt that thing. No matter how good it is in itself, you are now guilty of corrupting that which is God's. Some examples. And before we move into those, I'll say God is to be praised if and when He judges you for doing that. For example, your job. God gives you a job, provides a job for you to work so that you can provide. So that you can at that job work, not for the Lord, but as, or not for men, but as unto the Lord. God provides vocations so that we will use His gifts and His graces so that His kingdom can be manifested in us as we labor in this world. And so when you pervert your job into some way to puff up your ego or pad your billfold or to lay up earthly treasures or to build your status among peers as a workaholic. You might be poor as dirt, but brag about how much you work for nothing. Or when you use your job as an excuse as to why you can't fulfill some other duty that God has commanded you, you have perverted what God made for His glory, and you do so to your own destruction. Moms and dads, God means for the home to be an incubator for the church and a seminary to train up disciples after the Lord Jesus. When you pervert your role and make your child raising an opportunity to raise disciples up for yourself, whether those be good disciples or bad disciples, whether you, when you engender in your children some ungodly or sinful tendency that you exhibit because, well, this is just how I am and you can already begin to see it coming out in your children. You are corrupting the home that God designed for His glory and you are perverting it to your own destruction and possibly even the destruction of your children. Our job is to make disciples for Jesus Christ, not me. And there are times when I begin to see patterns in my children that I have to say, listen... Daddy's wrong. Don't do what Daddy does. Pray for Daddy. You follow Christ. Pray for your dad that he can follow Christ. Don't be like me. But we do that. We think, oh, we're, we're proud of them because they begin to mimic our godless habits. Dads, when you take your role as head of the household and then you begin to work harder to instill in your children a fear of dad rather than a fear of God, you've perverted your role into something that will, could possibly result to your own destruction and even their own destruction. Now, there doesn't have to be a dichotomy between your children learning to fear their parents as a, a, a training tool to learn what it means to fear God, but very often we're proud if they fear me and they don't know anything about the fear of God. They've never seen their father tremble at the thought of God. And so they learn to fear dad. They learn to fear mom. But they never learn to fear God. You've perverted your role. We're just saying God is the potentate of time. All time is God's time. He owns it. He made it. He rules it. It's His. It's all for Him. 
Every waking moment of your existence on this planet is for God. He owns the time. And so when you take time that belongs to God and you use it for your own selfish pleasures, you corrupt that which belongs to God. You took the stage that was meant to display His glory and you made it a stage for your own glory. When it comes to money, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, including the finances that we use to provide for ourselves, to provide for the ministry of the church, to provide for the needs of the poor. And all of this to God's glory. But when we take what God provides and we use it for our own self-pampering to satisfy our lusts, you rob God and you corrupt what is His. If you're married, husbands and wives, God invented marriage. We know to be a display of the gospel of Christ so that you would both be drawn up to know Him. But whether it's husband or wife... Whenever you take your role in marriage and you begin to work and manipulate your spouse and so that they, you begin to require of them more devotion from them, more time, more affection from them than even they're allowed to give to God or you pitch a fit, you have manipulated this thing that God has invented for His glory for your own glory. You perverted that which is God's. When it comes to the church... The church belongs to God. He bought it with His own blood. All we do in the church is to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So when you take the blessings of the church, you distort them or you make the ministry of the church a, a place to display yourself and your gifts. You pervert what God has created to your own destruction or whenever you take advantage of the church. Use the benevolence of the church and the kindness of God's people to fill in the gaps of your own sluggardliness, your own laziness. You've corrupted what is God's. You've, you've turned what is God's into a place of idolatry. How often do we take something that was meant to be a theater for God's glory and turn it into a stage where our idolatry is manifested? How often... Are you guilty of setting yourself up in the temple of God, pretending to be God and draw away disciples to yourself? We find out or we learn here in this passage that that is a crime so vile that when it is punished, all of creation, all of heaven erupts in praise as it is judged. God judges the harlot because she corrupted that which was His. The subject of these songs is praise to God also for His vindication of the saints. It's not just judgment, but it is also vindication. Verse 2, God has avenged on her, Babylon, the blood of His servants. Now we've done this a couple times, but just so you can keep the picture of the book back in chapter 10, or chapter 6 rather, verse 10, they cried out, those under the throne cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Here, we see the reciprocal praise when it happens. God has vindicated His people and heaven rejoices at the vindication of God's saints. It's not just the saints, all of heaven. Now, why would they do that? Why does heaven, all of heaven worship? Well, it's because of the intimate, personal solidarity that Christ the darling of heaven, shares with every one of His saints. As Christ said in Acts 9.4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You persecute the church, 
you're, you're touching Christ. You're persecuting the mystical body of Christ. You're touching the apple of His eye. He, Christ, the exalted Lord, is seen as persecuted when His mystical body suffers. And so when, when the saints are vindicated, finally, it's not just the glorified saints. All of heaven erupts in praise because their Lord, heaven's Lord, has been vindicated. His servants, it says God's servants, divine investment and involvement has come in our service to God. We're His servants. Anybody who had a servant and treated them in a godly manner, they invested in that servant. That was someone that they took care of because they knew if I invest in this one and take care of them, they will in turn serve me well. And there's also that solidarity that we have with Christ as we serve. We're God's servants. When we are vindicated, God is vindicated. Now when we see that, that ought to engender in us love for God, that He would be willing to invest in us, to call us to be His servants, and then to so tether Himself to our service that when we suffer, He says, I see that tear, I see that bruise, I see that drop of blood, I see those moments that you had to spend away from your family in the jail cell, I see every second, and I will make it right. I will vindicate my servants. We ought to love that God. The pagans don't have a God like that. We should love Him. But at the same time, that creates in us this great hope. Every drop, every tear, every, every bead of sweat, whatever it might be that comes upon the servants of God, we have a great hope. God has bound Himself to vindicate every bit of it and He will do it. We know that He will do it. We have this hope. We, we might not see it in our lifetimes. We might go to our graves seeing it far worse than we've ever seen it before. But we know with our dying breath and our dying thought, God will vindicate His people. There's a hope in what He will do. We see the very heaven of heavens, the voices of the redeemed and all of the heavenly host echo the praises of God as Babylon is judged and the saints are vindicated. When God finally acts in judgment upon Babylon, the city of man, the unanimous consent of heaven is we ought to praise God for this. This is good. They worship Him. And again, it is important to remember that the fall of Babylon is synonymous with the final cataclysmic end of all things. We saw in the seventh trumpet that song, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. We'll see next week in verse 6 a near parallel construction to that same song. Hallelujah, for the Lord God the Almighty reigns, or the Lord God Almighty has begun to reign. It's the same event. In chapter 11, verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came at the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. What have we seen here? In chapter 18, the call, rejoice Over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment. Chapter 19, verse 2, He has judged the great prostitute and avenged on her the blood of His servant. This is all one event. The end of time viewed from various perspectives. The fall of Babylon is the final end time destruction of all things. 
followed only by the eternal destruction of the wicked in hell and the, glory, the glory, eternal glory of the saints. As Babylon falls, sinners fall. This is people being destroyed. As the prostitute is judged, those involved in her idolatry are judged. This is people who are being destroyed. In other words, as everyone, slave and free, is hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb and people you know and love and care for are calling for the rocks to fall upon them. Amongst the heavenly, amongst the godly, amongst the saintly, there will be only rejoicing at their destruction. Not sorrow. You won't say, I feel sorry for you. No sorrow. No regret. Oh, I wish I would have had more time. No. Let them be judged. No remorse. No mercy. The godly, heaven worships because the wicked are judged. Their attention is on God because He acted for them in judgment. They stand amazed at what God has done in the act of judgment. It's not God did a lot of great things. We're worshiping Him over here while the judgment's over here and we're just trying not to think about it. No, we, we watch the judgment. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures say, we will judge the nations. We will be with Him. And, and Isaac Ambrose has a tremendous section on this concept of standing before children judging parents, parents judging children, congregations judging pastors, pastors judging congregations. The wicked being judged by the godly on this day. And heaven erupts in praise. They see it as a praiseworthy act. They don't say, God, not that one. That's my son, not that one. No. God, that's my mother, that's my grandmother, not her. None of that. That was my co-worker. I, I talked to him so much, you, you, you could see how he was kind of beginning to, to, to listen to what I had to say. None of that. No sorrow, no regret, no remorse. Praise. Judge them. As the heavenly host and the glorified saints watch multitudes go to their eternal destruction, they explode in exuberant and lavish praise, not as a separate event from their destruction, but in direct response to their destruction. Now, when we begin to think about application, we kind of want to just say, you know, number one, let's prepare for that day. Let's be, ready to be, be making sure that we're ready for the day of judgment, which we should always be. And eternity should always be before our eyes. We should always be thinking of the final day. And then we would say, well, number two, let us hope in that day. Let us rejoice that that day is coming. And that would be very simple. And those are true applications. We, we should pre be preparing. We should hope. But let's think of it a little differently. We're taught to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that a formality? Is that something that we pray because Christ said to pray it? Is this a, is this a petition of wishful thinking? 
I pray this. I know that it's not actually going to happen, but Jesus said to pray it, and it sounds really good. Is this a, a merely or exclusively futurist petition that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're thinking of is really the end of all things because we know that this is not actually something that happens in the here and now. The answer to those is no, no, no. This is a prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer, a petition that we are taught to pray assuming that it will be the honest desire of our hearts prayed in faith, knowing that even in the here and now, even in the already but not yet, God Almighty is breaking into time and space. Eternity breaks into time. The eternal breaks into the temporal. And God, by His powerful Spirit, is actually bringing it to pass now. His heavenly will is being done on the earth now, just like it is in heaven. Not fully, we don't see all of the ways, but it is already beginning to happen and we pray it. And we're told to pray it because it has to flow, like any petition, from the honest disposition of our hearts to really see God's will fulfilled on the earth just like it's fulfilled in heaven. That's assumed in any prayer. If we're to pray this petition rightly, then it must be the sincere desire of our hearts that God's kingdom come and that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this chapter, we just saw that in heaven, the destruction of the city of man and the judgment and punishment of every unbeliever is an occasion for praise. That's God's will in heaven. That's what's going to happen on this day. Now can you imagine... If I told everybody I'm going to give you 10 seconds to to bring before the, the eyes of your mind one friend, one family member, one co-worker that you know they are lost. You've made some attempt to pray for them. Maybe even some attempt to convey the gospel to them. But you know that they're still in their sins. Can you imagine that person, that face crying out for the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the returning Christ, and in that moment looking at their face and praising God as they are destroyed. Not praising God simply because Christ has come. We will rejoice at His return, but precisely because that one is being judged. Now, I can't. I can't imagine that mindset. And I'm tempted to say that there is a sense in which because at the present time we are supposed to be growing in and and dispensing mercy to the lost while there is still time. We want to be... we, 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 We see the patience of God as salvation. We desire after their souls at the present time. And so when we we think to rejoice at their damnation. How could I even begin to think of that? But that'll be the case. Our sanctification will get to the point where we're able to praise. But a simpler question might be, can you imagine Babylon? Let's let's take individual faces out of the picture for a moment. 
Can you imagine Babylon, the whole world apart from God, the, the system and apart from God coming to an end, and as you behold the sight, you rejoice at that. Now, that's a little easier because it's, we can think in more of ideologies and systems and, and all, the, all of that. And there are some areas where we, we can already feel this passionate desire to see it fall, right? The IRS is going to come down. Praise the Lord. Let that thing crumble. Let's, let's do this now. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we, that, that, well, that's easy. And then there are other areas where we are so blind to our involvement in it that it's a little bit harder to say, Lord, bring it down. Bring the whole thing down. I'm ready to see Your kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's a little more difficult, but at the same time, it's easier than faces and individuals that we know. But if we're to pray that God's will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and the heavenly host praise God as He judges Babylon, then our hearts ought to have something in them, even if they're just flickers of a desire that is molded after that heavenly way of thinking. That when it comes down, I'm probably going to be cool with it. I can let it go. That We ought to have that mindset. We we ought to be able to truly see the judgment of the world as an occasion for praise. So what does it look like to have that perspective now? How do we facilitate that perspective now? What exactly is this perspective? What does it look like to live in the world, but also have the ability to praise God when it's gone? I have to be here. We have to work. We have to involve ourselves in various things. And so there are areas where we we would look and say, "I, I don't... My family, for example, you walk into the home and we know that the, the, the family unit as it is now will not exist in that form in eternity, but it's hard to walk in and say, Lord, bring it down. What does it look like to live in this world and to cultivate this, this way of thinking that God's will would be done on the earth, even in us specifically as individuals, God's will is to be performed. His kingdom is is within us. When we pray, Your kingdom come, we're praying for individual work in us at the same time. What does it look like to pray that and have that mindset that we could praise God if all of the kingdoms and everything that man has built, even the stuff that I have built, my wood, my hay, my stubble, come down? What what does that look like? How do we we develop that? A A couple things. First, we must see God's glory as the supreme aim of our lives. God's glory must be the supreme aim of our lives. I think that we know this. I think that we believe this. I trust that we're putting it into practice. We need to be living in this life ascribing glory to God. If we go back to that heavenly praise, it was saturated with just ascribing glory to God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. God's salvation is manifested as He judges the prostitute. God's glory is manifested. God's power is made known. His veracity is shown as He fulfills all of the threats that He made to the wicked. God is shown to be just in all that He does. And so there's praise because they love God's glory. If we love God's glory, we're already beginning to develop that mindset. And so we have to be people who are saturated with this, just ascribing the glory of God 
to God in all things, and those things which detract from God's glory, which do not in any way ascribe glory to God, we develop an attitude where we say, that's a worthless thing. That does me no good. We must love God's glory, God's power, God's salvation. Long for God to be shown true. For God to be shown just. It ought to break our hearts that there are people who are not rendering praise to God. Not not that we hate their souls, but that we love God. Why, Why would they not worship Him? Why are they not worshiping you? We should be exulting in His judgments. For He has judged the great prostitute, not simply because pain is inflicted, not because we love to see torment, but because justice has been administered, because righteousness is no longer questioned. God's holiness is no longer questioned. We, we see people and hear people say, well, if God is so good, why, do, why is there murder? Why are there, if God is so good, blah, 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 and they name something that mankind does of his own volition in his wickedness, well, if God is so good, and they... they On this day, they will say, God is so good, period. They'll see it and they'll know it. And we should long for that. I I want people to see, God, that you are good. He will be vindicated in His judgments. We should delight in His purifying work. They say, He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth. She corrupted the earth, so I rid the earth of her. I purified the earth. God will not allow impurity to remain in His presence. And so since we desire or ought to desire the presence of God even more than the presence of people, we're going to be satisfied when God rids corruptions and impurities from the earth and from our own lives. And we delight in that. God, continue to do your purifying work here. Let your will be done here. And then when it goes on a broader scale, we'll be able to rejoice We should even now be ever growing in our love for God's people. They sang, He's avenged on her the blood of His servants. We have to love each other. We should ache with tender compassion when we see brothers and sisters suffer. It should make us angry that God's servants would die at the hand of wicked men or suffer at the hand of wicked men. Even we know that that's in the providence of God. This is the pathway. This is how the church goes into her glory, but we should hate it that this is the way things are. And so that when God does avenge their blood, we will rejoice. God's glory in His salvation, in His attributes, in His people should be the supreme aim of every thought, every word, every deed of ours in this life. And when that is so, when we truly rejoice to see His glory manifested, even in judgments, And when the final day comes, that will merely be the consummation of what has been our growing attitude for our whole lives. The glory of God must be our aim in all things. Secondly, we have to remember even now that our citizenship is already in heaven. Already. We have to remember the words of Paul in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 You might have the word conversation. Our conversation is in heaven. The word means the overall way of life of a person and has exclusive connotations of depending on where they are from, their citizenship. If you're from 
South America, you might do things a little different than you do here because your citizenship is there. And even if you came here to be a citizen, for a while there might be some things you've got to get used to. Why? Well, because my citizenship is there. That's the idea. My, I I'm still have a way of life that is characterized by a different place. That's the picture. Our citizenship and thus our manner of life is heavenly. We have a hard time getting along here. Why do you act so funny? You'll have to excuse me. I, I'm, my citizenship is somewhere else. I'm not used to being here. Now the irony is in, in our nature we are from here naturally and we have corruptions that we war with. There's lots of room that we have to grow in this reality but our citizenship, our conversation is in heaven. Now, if you're a believer, that's your home country. Those laws are your laws. What does it look like to live in this citizenship? Again, referencing Isaac Ambrose here, he says, Our aim is heaven. All works are to fit us for heaven. Everything we do, we're thinking, this is getting me ready for heaven. I'm preparing for heaven. Our communion is with Christ who is in heaven. Who are you talking to? Who do you spend all your time with? Well, I'm spending time with the Christ who lives in heaven. Well, that's why you act so strange here. We live according to the laws of heaven, which are the laws of God. The laws of this land sometimes are quite contrary, and that makes it very difficult. But we live according to the laws of God. Our thoughts and our meditations are on heaven, in heaven, of heavenly things. Our desires, our hopes, our loves, and our joys are in the Christ of heaven. Our trading or our negotiations are for heaven. In all of our business, we're laying up treasure for heaven. And so people say, you act so strange. Well, you'll have to excuse me. I'm just not from here. These laws are strange to me. The things that you aspire to, they're strange to me. The people you hang out with, they're strange to me. I've been commuting with the Christ of heaven. This reminded me of this I've said before. You've all heard this phrase that somebody is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I tell you and will continue to tell you that that doesn't exist. That's a misnomer. That's a lie. The most heavenly minded man who ever walked the earth done the most earthly good. The problem is, really, people are so earthly minded that they're no earthly good. We don't want to set our minds on heaven because well, we'll be, we won't be any earthly good. So we dump our minds in the things of the earth, of the world, and we think that we're doing earthly good. But we're not. Post, posting a link, sharing this, quoting this person, saying this, I heard this. You haven't done anything. You can't put your finger on one thing that you've done for the earth because you're earthly minded. Live as a citizen of heaven and then you will do some earthly good. When we live as citizens of heaven, that's when heaven begins to break in upon the earth and we rejoice. That is the blessing of the gathering of the saints. As we come here and heaven breaks in on earth a little bit. If you're like me, I've spent the, the week around a lot of people I don't normally hang around with. And I told Christy last night, I cannot wait to get home or, and go to church tomorrow. Not to talk to them necessarily, just to be around some people who think like I think. It's difficult. This is a, a, a reprieve. Bunyan said, Is Antichrist to be destroyed? Then let them that love God, His Son, and His Zion cry to God that it may be hastened in its time. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. There are some who would say to pray that prayer is sin. That's, that's hate towards your lost neighbors. Well, take that up with Christ. 
We hasten its time. Is Antichrist to be destroyed? Let us live in expectation of it. Must Antichrist be destroyed? Then this should make us glad when we see the signs of His fall presenting themselves to our view. When nations crumble, we should say, right, the Word of God is true. Let every man be a liar. They will not build a kingdom that will stand this side of eternity. Some of us are so tethered to the world that when signs of its temporal nature show themselves, when pieces and portions crumble, we sort of we might whimper out a little bit of a chapter 18, you know, lamentation, rather than having our souls warmed by the fires of God's truth that it must be so, like those in this chapter. And we we have to think: Am, am I am I Revelation 18 or am I Revelation 19? How do I respond when things crumble? We must aim for God's glory and remember that this world is not our home. When we're already living as citizens of heaven, having our minds, hearts, and affections shaped regularly by the Spirit of God so that we can see this world through heavenly lenses, then we can trust that at the moment of full sight, it is very hard for us to imagine now, at the moment of full sight, the fullness of the work will be brought to completion and we will say, Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Let's pray.